came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding. And I am Xenia Chmutina. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Thank you for tuning in. Hey, Jason. Hey, Sonia. How are you? I'm good. Listen, so Google impressed me a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I'm, I'm still excited by that. So, you know, when it was um, Freire's 100th birthday on the 19th of September, yes. Google searching engine, what's called Google Doodle, right? Um, it actually had a picture of Freire, which is the most exciting thing ever. I've never thought Google into Freire. <laughs> Maybe more opportunistic than into Freire. <laughs> Marxist Google, imagine that. That'll be something. We should sell that idea to whoever's in charge of Google. Oh, yeah, I'm sure they'll really be into that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, sure. I, you know, we could provide lots of advice. We know people who could provide lots of advice. <laughs> That'd be great. Anyway, whilst I'm thinking how to create a search engine, why don't you listen to today's episode, which is actually very much relevant to Freire? So the importance and the role of communication is something that we've been discussing a lot on Disasters Deconstructed Podcast. In particular, in our audience participation episodes, we've explored the impact of various contested concepts, such as resilience and vulnerability. And we also discussed why dialogue is so important if we're to ensure that we truly reduce disaster risks, taking into account not just what we, the so-called experts, know, but also listening to those who are often not heard. And today we will continue this exploration and we will be talking about communication for social change and liberation with our amazing guests, Dr. Anna-Christina Susiner and Professor Thomas Tufte, who are both based at the Institute for Media and Creative Industries at Loughborough University in London. Anna is a Divihume Early Career Fellow. She is an expert, researcher, and writer focusing on social movements, NGOs, and community. Anna has coordinated a major Brazilian corporation's nature conservation communication strategy, and she also served as communications officer for a major social organization in the field of children's rights, and as press officer for a major Brazilian foundation working in the same field. And Thomas is the director for the Institute for Media and Creative Industries. His research explores the interrelations between media texts, flows, genres, communicative practices, and process of, of citizen engagement and social change. Anna Thomas, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. We're so glad to have you on today. And um, we like to bring a, a broad variety of guests on and, and you both. Uh, offer something totally fresh, I think, in this podcast. So it's very exciting. And I want to start with you, Thomas. I know communication for social change is something that in our field, disaster studies, we rarely talk about. And But we do recognize that the only way to stop recreating disaster risk is through social change. 
So I think a lot of people um, that study disasters will be interested in the work that you've been doing. So I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about it and unpack what communication for social change actually means. Yes, thank you, Jason. Uh, let me try and do that um, and maybe start by telling you how I would define the field of communication for social change. I mean, basically, it's about using uh, communication to articulate a process of social change. And um, the way the, the field I come from uh, is cultural sociology. I'm a cultural sociologist by training, mm -hmm. and I've worked many years to try to understand uh, the role and how we make sense of communication in everyday life. And um, my particular area of interest has been the force of fiction, how we can use you know, storytelling to engage people, to captivate an audience, and actually also to articulate change. So that was kind of my entry point into the mm -hmm. field a long time ago, where a South African NGO invited me to be on their advisory board, an organization called Salt City in South Africa. And um, that speaks to the example I'm going to give of how, you know, when you ask what communication for social change actually means, I'm going to give you an example from the field of uh, health communication and HIV and AIDS communication in particular. Okay. I would say that was really a breakthrough area for communication for social change. Um, back in the 90s, 1990s, when uh, HIV and AIDS was a huge problem, uh, not least in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, communication was also brought on board as a tool, you might say, to try to um, do something about it and tackle the problem of uh, HIV and AIDS. Um, and in that process, uh, we saw a lot of examples and a lot of projects, a lot of NGOs, a lot of UN agencies, a lot of bilateral uh, agencies, a lot of governments, all of them coming on board um, in this field of HIV and AIDS, communication and prevention. You might say that's also a disaster, mm. a social disaster, uh, and, you know, the, the problem of HIV and AIDS. And in it, you saw a lot of examples of using storytelling. Um, however, if you want to try to break it down and see the different pathways of using communication to articulate change, and social change in particular, um, Typically, I say that there are three lines, or three pathways in this field. Um, there's the oldest tradition and traditional way of using communication um, to articulate change, which is known as behavior change communication, which I'm sure you might be uh, probably are familiar with. Um, uh, it goes all the way back to the 50s, and it's very much focused on individual change. So you use communication, you develop campaigns, um, with the purpose of getting individuals to change uh, their behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, a sec and that the point there is, um, I mean, the, the criterion of success there is successful delivery of information. So there you're trying to, you're trying to uh, solve a, a knowledge gap or an information need. So that's behavior change communication, uh, which I would say at the end of the day is different from what, we, what we're talking about today. But let me just uh, take you through the second point, which is then uh, life skills communication, which is uh, closely tied to um, typically formal educational processes of building uh, life skills that enable you to make uh, the right choices uh, in life. And also, for example, in, the, in, in a context uh, where um, the risk of uh, acquiring HIV 
uh, is present. So that's a, a skills, a life skills focus. And thirdly comes then uh, communication uh, for social change, which I call then the third generation of of, uh, of communication uh, for uh, for development. This all comes together under that hat of communication for development. Mm-hmm. So communication for social change is not about in, uh, filling an information gap. It's it's defined as a social process. And then we're, we're back to some of your introductory uh, remarks uh, about uh, dialogue and about using dialogue in, in, our, in addressing questions uh, of uh, inequality, um, injustice, or structural constraints of different kinds. So when you define communication as a social uh, process, it's not necess- the, the criterion of success is not efficiency in information transfer, transfer. It's the ability to get people to talk. So it's the ability to get people to talk together and define uh, their problem, which typically is not a, uh, an information problem uh, or a, it can be a communication problem, but it's rather a development problem or a social problem. And oftentimes you'll, you'll find out it ends up being a, uh, actually a political problem as well. So um, communication for social change, then, if we try to redefine it, it's about the strategic use of communication to articulate a social change process where you have, for example, elements of advocacy. You know, again, back to the example of HIV and AIDS. It's not enough to convey information to uh, people that might not know the uh, A, B, and C of uh, HIV and AIDS communication, how to abstain or how to be faithful or how to use a condom. Mm-hmm. But it's also about um, addressing um, um, what we call advocacy communication. So addressing decision makers, pricing structures around medicine, it might be about infrastructure, you know, access to uh, clinics. So suddenly you move beyond the field of communication. You're actually into a whole range of other uh, fields which have to do with uh, some of the development constraints that you then embed this communication effort in. It makes me um, think a lot about how we keep coming back on our podcast and indeed in discussions in our field to like um, how we are or at least a lot of decision makers are prone to treating symptoms of disaster risk rather than actually going deeper and looking at where the risk is coming from where it's being created um and so i think a lot of like from what you're saying um if we put all our our efforts into like just trying to change behaviors or trying to um make people like give people information and don't actually go deeper into this interconnected web of issues, then we, we never actually solve the, the problem, do we? No, and the problem is, I mean, oftentimes it's very um, uh, tempting, you know, also in a, in a budgetary constraint, in an organizational context, where you have a timeline, you have a deadline, you have a maximum number of dollars you can spend mm. uh, to, to try to define the communication effort uh, in a relatively simple way. But if you, I mean, it often comes at the cost of the sustainable, the sustainable change you achieve. It won't be sustainable the change you achieve if you focus only on the individual uh, mm. behavior change. So I think moving from what I would call behavior change communication to communication for social change, I think is many times uh, quite not always, but is many times necessary. Maybe not, for example, in this field of disaster. I think if at the moment of let's say something happening, something urgent that requires urgent attention, you might take on a very direct form of communication, no space for dialogue, and you have to communicate something quickly and efficiently over to a 
to a population or a target audience. But if you're looking at longer term uh, structural change and, and issues you just mentioned around resilience, you know, community engagement, those type of, um, uh, of, of issues, then I think you have to take this slower route. I think we really need to kind of engage more um, outside of our immediate um, disaster scholarship. Um, but Anna, I, I've got a question for you. Let's talk a little bit about your work. So you, your work on um, activism, communication, and social change is absolutely fascinating. And you know, I've got a million questions, but I'll just ask one. Um, what resonates with us as disaster scholars most is perhaps your work on communication approaches in the global north and global south. And in your latest book, The Evolution of Popular Communication in Latin America, and we will give the link to our audience in the show notes, uh, you've brought together contributions that reflect on creative and collective appropriation of communication as a strategy for resistance and hope for marginalized social groups in Latin America. And we've been talking quite a lot about hope and resistance in, in the previous seasons, because really it's quite an important part of what we do as disaster scholars. So to you, what does communication for hope means and how should we communicate for hope? Uh, first, thank you for your very kind appreciation of my work and for mentioning my, my late, latest edited book. It's very kind of you. And I think as Thomas, the, as Thomas did, the best way to answer your question or to approach the reflection you propose is to, to bring a concrete experience and I will bring here the experience I had as, as a communication practitioner in one grassroots organization in Brazil that's called Pastoral da Criança which is an organization related with children's rights in poor communities all over Brazil and I worked there between the end of the 90s and the beginning of the 2000s and that experience suggests to me that communication for hope, or maybe we should say communication with hope, relates with scale and time. And I will give you one, one example that comes from uh, someone else's research. At that time, my line manager, um, a colleague called Elson Fascina was doing his master degree and did a research about the community leaders of that organization. And it's worth explaining that community leaders there were poor women, many illiterates, who were trained and motivated to play leading roles in community development and in facing a, a large scale and long-term disaster of malnutrition killing thousands of children under five years old all over Brazil. And in one of the interviews uh, my colleague made with one of these uh, community leaders, uh, one of these uh, women told him, and I quote, when I read in the newspaper that Pastoral da Criança is saving a million children from malnutrition, I understand that the 10 children I look for are part of that million. Then, even when I'm facing personal or collective challenges, 
I remember that if I stop, there will be a million less than children saved. And I love the way she relates the role of media and communication in that process of change, because that piece of news that she's referring was able to confirm that she was important in the large process of change. The scale of only 10 children became larger, and her trust in the importance of her individual work grew up in the context of the collective effort. And so, and to summarize my understanding of this, communication for hope is about providing a message that fits the dimension of change one is capable of per to perform. And re resistance, because I don't want to miss this bit of our question that I love very much, resistance is about preserving and strengthening this collective character of this, of this process. And so if we look to, to disasters that we face today, like climate change or the emergence of authoritarian regimes, threats, threats to, to, to democracy all over many places of the world, they are presented as huge. And the kind of communication that we do many times is presented as, this, as, as, as an individual solution, an individual participation. So even if we, when we talk about social networks, this chain is dispersed in the indivi individual nodes. And so for me, resistance and hope in communication are about keeping or sometimes recovery, agency and collective engagement um, among this, uh, among the pe people suffering the, the, the problems. I absolutely love how you put this. And I, I, I love the kind of how you highlight the importance of resistance and hope as a collective action. Because I, whilst I think we perhaps frame it like this, we've never quite expressed it or thought about it like this. And I just want to follow up very quickly. So how do we give them this hope, you know, to people? How do we explain this through this collective hope there is an opportunity to resist? I, I don't know if the right um, approach is explaining, because I think there is, and there is a very interesting, interesting uh, perspective that for me comes from, from popular communication as, as, we try to discuss in, in the book with all the authors. Mm. That is a relationship between reasoning and feeling. Mm. Because you don't explain, I, I don't know if, if there is a, an only way of explaining to someone that she or that, that they need to have hope. But, and that's why I talk about scale and time. Because if you, if you are able to, to say that the, small scale of one action can engage in a chain of transformation and, and change something, that, so then maybe these people will feel empowered to do this very small action with a perspective of being connected with something else. So I think it's about, about putting in perspective. So this, this would be about reasoning, like kind of, of putting this perspective to, to, the, to the people. But then making these people, making this person trust in the potential of, in the potential of, of their actions 
in small scale in the time they have to do it. So I think it is a combination between explaining and providing some kind of feeling, experiencing the possibility of change. I have a question for both of you, um, because Ksenia and I both recently enjoyed the Paolo Freire centennial events that you all at Loughborough organized. And for anyone in our audience, if you haven't seen these talks, we are going to provide the link in the show notes. They're a series of incredible um, conversations. So I was wondering if um, both of you could maybe speak a bit about the importance of Freire's work in terms of its role in communication for social change? Uh, we can, Jason. Um, and I can maybe start by saying a little bit about also who Paulo Freire is mm-hmm. and also what led us to you know, a university in London organizing um, some centennial talks. Paulo Freire uh, would have turned 100 uh, in September of 2021. He died a long time ago, 1997. But he was, let me just say a little bit about who he was uh, and also connected to this field and what we're discussing today about communication for social change. Because some might wonder, because he's an adult, was an adult uh, educator, mm-hmm. uh, originally trained as a lawyer in northeastern Brazil. He was Brazilian. And then he um, uh, became, uh, he developed a method to teach uh, people, landless peasants in northeastern Brazil, how to read and write. Uh, but linked to this method, uh, which we can go into a bit of detail of if you want, but linked to that it was also a whole educational philosophy or what uh, Anna and I, we've written, we've been writing about this in this, in preparing for this celebration, we've been editing actually two, two different, uh, or co-editing two special issues of some journals, and now we're preparing a, a third issue of, of a Brazilian journal called Matrizes. Um, and what we try to argue there is that Paulo Freire's uh, educational philosophy is also a philosophy uh, of change, and a philosophy of, uh, of social change. Mm-hmm. And I would say some of the points Anna raised before, linked to her example from working with children and human rights in Brazil, uh, some of those elements are also very cons- uh, very significant in, in Paulo Freire's educational philosophy. Mm-hmm. It's very much about dialogue. It's very much about uh, um, what in Portuguese is called conscientização, which is a poor translation. You might be awareness raising. Mm-hmm. So it's very much about teaching. Um, and he also has a whole, you know, whole notion of this catalyst of change. He doesn't like to talk about you know, the teacher and the student. He talks yeah. about it as a very um, uh, egalitarian relationship, equal relationship, sorry, um, between the person who might be teaching and the person who might be uh, uh, considered the student. And um, he also has this very close interconnection between uh, what people do and, how, and people's reflection, uh, a process, a, a constant process, a process of action, reflection and action. So if you, if you remain only in your actions, it becomes what he calls activism. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's got a whole new connotation today, hasn't it? Activism. <laughs> but it remains activism. But if you, if you then reflect upon what you, upon your actions and go back into action after that, it becomes uh, a process of, of awareness raising. 
if you remain behind your desk, as some academics might do, as myself, no, hopefully not. But you know, if we remain at our desks just reflecting, it becomes verbalism. Yeah. So it's that integration of action, reflection, and action that makes it a, a process, which, is, which, by the way, also is a, is a, is a collective process, uh, together with others, in dialogue with others. And um, just to give you an example of uh, the influence of Freire, um, yeah, we're celebrating his centenary this year, uh, and maybe uh, Anna will speak more, can speak a bit more to his uh, influence uh, in Brazil. Uh, but he's also had a huge influence globally. He had to leave Brazil back in the when the military dictatorship kicked in in 1964, and he he fled around the world through Chile and onwards. Um, and um, so he traveled the world, and he spent ten years in Geneva working uh, for international organizations, which might be part of the, uh, the explanation of why some of his publications, some of his books, became used widespread across the globe. Mm. So, for example, in the issue of Matrizes, this Brazilian journal of communication that we're co-editing at the moment, um, we have contributions from the Philippines, from South Africa, from India, places like that. And also just want to mention um, an anthology that I co-edited years back in 2006 with a Bolivian colleague, Alfonso Gumusi Lagron, on uh, 50 years of, of communication for social change. Where we kind of retrieved the history of the field, uh, and we ended, you know, we made a global call. We got a lot of contributions. We selected uh, with peers. We selected two hundred articles in this mm. quite big book. And the point there is that an enormous amount of those publications from across the globe are very rare and inspired. Mm. And you know, another way of maybe putting some of his uh, his or understanding his his influence is also looking at participatory communication. And even studies of participation more broadly. And I think in those, in that field, you'll find him as a, as a seminal scholar. Mm -hmm. And that's, and participatory communication, I would say, is constitutive for, is foundational for understanding what communication for social change uh, is all about. Yeah. Thank you. I, I love how you, um, explain that, Thomas. Anna. Yeah. Um, it's a very interesting question. The role of reading communication for social change because for me it's it talks a lot with this this approach to popular communication that that um, I try to organize in this book with this these colleagues from different places in Latin America and and it's interesting when we are talking here in English and when we say popular communication probably people will refer to different understandings of popular. And in Latin America, the role of Paulo Freire could be, in, in the field of communication in general, could be the role of defining a whole epistemology of communication. That it is what I'm calling popular communication, not, not just me, but uh, in this book, uh, what I refer to as popular communication. That is an epistemology based in, in at least three principles. Mm -hmm. uh, one is the bottom-up approach. So it all this this idea of, of of or this valuing Freire that we need to recognize every single person as someone with a respectable knowledge. Mm -hmm. So this is part of this principle of popular communication that you any any kind of um, 
communication for emancipation, empowered communication, it comes from the bottom, from listening to, to, to the people, listening to people involved with the issues we are communicating about. The second principle is a deep relationship with struggles. And some popular communicators that I have worked with during my research, uh, they talk about a kind of a meta level that popular communication is a struggle to make other, other struggles viable. So it's about, like you say about disasters, it's also about cons the constructions of meaning in society. So popular communication is about this. How do we, uh, produce reproduce or challenge meanings in society, the meanings that organize the way we live. Mm. And the third principle, uh, and, and, uh, and this is all about Freire as well, this principle of struggle, because this is uh, when, when Freire is, is talking, uh, he's talking about a different view of society, a view that defies uh, um, the challenges, our relationship with power, or challenge the power in within relationships and so it is in the base of this uh, way of of seeing and dealing with communication the third principle is is about occupying media not all communication requires media but when using media it's about occupying it mm. and transforming it and making media that del deliver the kind of message that supports resistance and role and hope as as I was talking before. Mm. So Freire is kind of it is the stone in which all these principles uh, lay down and this is it, it, it is the region of an a whole epistemology of communication. And it seems to me that these five principles, so the principles of dialogue, empathy, humility, love, and hope, are also so relevant to disaster studies because what we do is really closely related to kind of to the notions of participatory communication and also articulation of bottom-up development processes. And yet, very often we see in disaster risk reduction efforts that um, people's capacities and people's knowledges are completely neglected, you know, and ignored and sometimes completely disrespected, really. And so uh, to me, Freire's principles can really challenge kind of this top-down decisions and designs and also the dehumanization and vulnerabilization of people that we see so often when we do disaster research and also depolitization of disasters that are currently so prominent. We've kind of seen this with COVID and of course the whole narrative of disasters being natural um, that is so impactful. And this is because often many so-called disaster experts come from science and engineering background, right? And they, they kind of feel perhaps far removed from the reflective practices that Freire offers us. So how can we challenge and change this? Oh, this is this is a great question, and I love the way you frame it in relation to dehumanization and vulnerabilization of people. Because Freire is, is all about, in the opposite, he's all about humanization. Mm. His work is about en entitling people with humanity. Mm -hmm. he's, he writes about this many times. Mm. 
And, and I would highlight then this, uh, what we can call as a utopic perspective, perspective of eliminating power in the relationships as an empowerment strategy. We can be tricky to understand because then power is not for domination, but for appreciation of each other's wisdom. It's something like I recognize that I am powerful for who I am and what I can do, but I don't use this power to subject you to me. Mm. Instead, I recognize your power that is different from mine, and we may combine our powers and do great things together. Mm. And and so um, what I I would say that if and maybe I, maybe I have an outdated perspective about disaster, and I apologize for this. Uh, uh, but I, I think when I, when we look to disasters, there is a huge expression of solidarity through power in a certain way. So those who suffer the consequences of a disaster are in a critical position of vulnerability. And the response tends to be top-down, coming from what an external agent understands about what the other needs most. Mm. And the emergency is immediately understood as I need to decide on their behalf. Yeah. No, I don't I, I don't want to here to, to like to, to condemn emergency solidarity as, as Thomas was saying, sometimes you need immediate response. And sometimes you need to take decisions that don't don't give you time. And there is a lot of beauty in this immediate response as well. So I don't like to condemn all of this. But there is this the, the place of the principles you mentioned in your question. Dialogue, empathy, humility, love and hope that are the principles of, of that we can find in the pedagogy of the present uh, with Freire. And what I think about these principles that I, I want to maybe briefly summarize here with you is that first there is humility in the comprehension that those providing support do not have all the answers and can even be wrong. And then there, there, there is dialogue based on what Thomas was saying, this, this permanent action, reflection, and action that is the trademark of, of Rede's approach. And it means that the intervention is not the plan but rather an ongoing plan that keeps adapting based in collective reflection about the development of the action and the results obtained. Then there is the empathy in a sense of respecting the other's path. And then popular communicator, communicators uh, in, in Latin America, they used to highlight, highlight one notion that I love, that is getting your feet in the mud as an understanding that you cannot tell stories if you do not walk the path of challenge that you want to report. And so how can you respond to something, to, to, a, to a need or to a disaster or anything else without walking this path? Mm -hmm. And then maybe you want to experience the disaster yourself and hopefully it, it's not the case for everyone, but, but you can listen and listen with both with with both ears, and and I never met Freire personally. Thomas did, I didn't. 
but people who 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 met him used to say that he had one attitude, one one corporal attitude of stopping anything he was doing if someone called him to share their story. <laughs> he stopped it to listen and he even touched someone's arm or someone's back and and just stayed there with listening. And so this uh without empathy. The response to, to, to anything may turn into a, the response to a disaster may turn into a second disaster, maybe. And then there is the love, the principle of love. And I don't know if I can be straighter to explain my view of it beyond saying that love is not charity. <laughs> love is not about what you said in your question. It's not about vulnerabilization and victimization. But love is about recognizing a peculiar situation of distress, but still believing those people are able to come up. And that my response, my contribution is to help them to find and access the resources necessary to come up. And then finally, there is the principle of hope that for me embeds the whole process. And then again, coming back to popular social movements, they talk and mobilize diverse forms of what we call in Latin America as mystic. And that healing is not just about providing some necessary good. It is about nurturing beliefs. In, in one of, the, of his books, Freire says that people must know that they must know that change is possible. And then it is, it is, that's why the hope embeds the whole process. You need to know in a, at a certain point that things can be different. And to conclude this, what I would like to say, answering this question, you ask about this kind of deformation of disaster experts coming from science engineering backgrounds. And I don't think the problem is the field where they come from. Maybe if there is a deformation, it comes from the training, because who says that university science and engineering training should not contemplate empathy and love? And then how can we include that and humanize the experts from their pro professional birth? Mm. So I think it is a question about also how are we training these people and why are we getting love and empathy out of this training? No, I think this was great. Uh, uh, these points raised by um, by um, Anna, but uh, Ksenia, even the in terms of training, I think the type of uh, master's program that we're developing at Loughborough University between our two campuses and uh, between two different um, uh, faculties, one very um, well, my institute for media and, and um, creative industries and uh, your uh, school, which is embedded in engineering, I think. It's a, it's a, we were developing an MA together around um, international sustainable development, which I think offers this opportunity that Anna is speaking uh, about to also um, suggest these different ways of approaching communication. Because I think that, uh, because it can oftentimes, you know, some of the or original uh, scholars behind uh, media communication uh, research, uh, Laswell and Lasarsfeld, especially Lasarsfeld, you know, they came out of uh, mathematics and uh, let's say traditional sociology, um, even with like an engineering type of perception of communication processes as linear, 
they're not. They're much more dialogic and uh, mm. interactive. And I think if we can embed that into some of our training, maybe that's also something that could speak to that element of hope that uh, Anna pointed out to, towards the end. Yeah, for sure. And now, um, Anna, Jason, you can hold us accountable <laughs> now that uh, you know we've signed up for this. We really should do this. And also, can I just say, Anna, your understanding of disasters is much better than um, many so-called disaster experts understand disasters. So thank you for your reflection. Yeah, it's exciting that you're doing this kind of uh, MA because in, in international development, because I think this kind of theoretical grounding is not present in a lot of development discourse, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited yeah. about that. Um, and yeah, I, I think this is, rather than being like outdated, Anna, I think um, this insight into um, ways of engaging and ways of meeting each other and holding space for each other um, is really necessary for disaster researchers and practitioners to consider. And it's actually very fresh for us to have these conversations. So um, we just really appreciate um, both of you, Anna and Thomas, for coming on the podcast. It's been an amazing conversation and we're going to um, share the, the different links to your work for our audience on the show notes. So thank you both so much. Thank you for the opportunity. I think it is, it is when you were talking, Jason, I just keep thinking of Freire and, and when he says that dialogue is in the center of everything. So dialogue between different fields of knowledge. Mm. It's essential as well. It's, it's great to be here with you. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time. You have been listening to Ksenia, Jason and us. Anna Christina Susina and Thomas Tufte on Disasters Deconstructed Podcast.